All right, guys, so this morning we are going to be addressing and unpacking the subject of conflict. We are going to be talking about the subject of conflict. And what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at conflict under three headings, okay? We are going to begin this morning by looking at the reality of conflict. Then after we look at the reality, we're going to transition to look at the response to conflict. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the resources for conflict, all right? So when it comes to conflict, we're going to look at the reality of it the response to it, and the resources for it, okay? So let's begin by looking at the first truth, which is the reality of conflict. Now, when you look at this passage, Jesus here uses very loaded language. He uses very loaded language. He uses words where even if you have never looked at this passage before, you can tell that he's talking about something serious here because of the language that he uses. He uses, he begins by talking about eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Then he talks about resisting an evil person. Then he talks about slapping someone. Then he goes further down. He talks about being sued. Then he talks about hating your enemy. Then he talks about uh, persecution. And so even if you've never read this passage in your life, even if you're brand new to the whole Bible thing, you're like, okay, clearly Jesus is talking about something related to conflict because all these words have to do with the subject of conflict. All these words have to do with the subject of of disagreement, right? And what Jesus is doing here right at the beginning of the passage is he's actually preparing us. He's giving us a, a framework for conflict. He's giving us parameters. He's saying, look, 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 in order for you to approach life correctly, you need to understand that conflict is a reality that you are going to experience. Conflict is going to happen. And Jesus proves that with all the loaded terms that he uses in the passage. That's what he's trying to tell us here when he talks to us about about conflict. Now, the reason why it's important for us to start with this truth, the reality of conflict, is because one of the lies that I think Christ followers believe, right? If you're sitting here and you, maybe you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet, this, this morning you have an opportunity to kind of like peer into what Christianity is and like, I don't know if this is for me or not. This is a great morning for that because you're going to see what Jesus is asking us to do here. But, but, it, but one of the lies, uh, maybe you don't believe this, but one of the lies that I bought into when I first became a Christian, when I first became a follower of Jesus was, now that I am a Christian, all conflict ceases. That's what I thought. No, that's really what I thought. Like, I came into Christianity, and I'm like, oh, well, we all believe in Jesus, and, and, and everyone here has been saved by grace, so there should be no conflict in the church. Everyone should just love each other. Everything should be, should be perfect. That's really what I thought for a long time. Well, it wasn't a long time. It was about a week before my first disagreement. <laughs> before my first disagreement, I'm like, wait a second. You see? See, one of the lies I think we believe, even if we won't state it publicly, I think one of the lies that we believe uh, subliminally, right, under the surface, I think Christians all make the assumption that conflict, because we're in Jesus now, should no longer be an issue. There should no longer be any conflict because we all believe in Jesus now, because we all have the gospel now. See, but the reality is that's not what Jesus is telling us. Jesus is saying, look, not only are you going to experience it in the church, but the fact that sin has entered the world, you're going to experience it at your work, you're going to experience it in your marriage, you're going to experience it in your neighborhood. You're going to experience it at family dinners, at family reunions. Jesus is saying, amen, brother. Invite me to that party. I want to see that. Right, I'll bring my popcorn. So, right? so Jesus is saying, look, 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 look. I don't know where you got the idea that conflict has ceased, but conflict is very much a reality for people in the world. For both non-Christians and for Christians, you are going to experience 
conflict. So what happened with me was, even before I became a Christian, I've never been the, the type to pursue conflict. I'm not a big fan of conflict. I usually avoid it at all costs. But when I became a Christian, and, I, and for, for a while I went through a season where I thought, oh, there's no more conflict, because I didn't expect it when it happened, I didn't respond correctly. I, res- I responded with defensiveness. I responded with anger. I responded with retaliation. Because think, think about it. When you're not ready for something, the odds of you responding correctly to it are slim to none. Amen? And so what Jesus is saying, no, no, he's like, if you guys are going to live this Christian life correctly, if you are going to be a disciple, because that's what he's talking to in this, in this whole sermon, if you are going to be a disciple that honors me, you not only have to accept, expect it, conflict, you are to embrace it. It's a way of life. It is going to happen. And the sooner that you, get, you understand that, the sooner that you can admit that, the easier things will be. Okay? Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, I don't know if I believe that. I don't think conflict is, is really a thing. Well, here, here's the thing. If that's you, let me, let me convince you. The word, one of the words that Jesus used there, he says, you have heard that it was said, you go to the next slide, sorry. He talks about how your enemy, right? He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. The word enemy there is one of those words that when you read it, you probably don't think of, oh, I have that many enemies, right? A lot of us are like, I'm not, I'm not a vindictive person. I don't feel like I have that many enemies. So, so almost always when you read a passage like this, you can almost like check yourself out and say, well, you know, I'll, I'll listen next week because this one has nothing to do with me. But here's the reality. Because conflict is a reality, you and I have more enemies than what we think. Because the word enemy in the Greek, it means someone whom you have hostility towards, someone who you feel superior to, someone who you have enmity with, someone who, if you're not careful, you can potentially hate, okay? Now, let me give you examples of modern-day enemies, right? Because when we think of enemies, we think of war and, and, and another soldier, you know, coming at, you know, or, or in, in the arena, like we're, we're gladiators. We're, I don't have any enemies. I don't have anyone who I'm fighting like that. But the reality is, is that we have more enemies than what we think. The first type of enemy that many of us struggle with are political enemies, right? So if you're sitting here and you're political to any degree, then there's probably a TV channel that you watch, whether it's CNN or Fox News. There's probably a radio station that you listen to. There's probably a newspaper that you pick up. There's probably a, pad, a podcast that you download. And what, what those... TV channels and podcasts and newspapers tell you is that there's someone on the other side of the aisle that you are to hate, despise, and look down on. And what ends up happening, especially when it comes to political enemies, is that it becomes so vindictive that you actually start to see them as less than a person. Like, like how dare you believe A, B, C, or D? How dare you be on that side? That's one of the reasons why I never share my political position here. One, because I don't want to influence anyone in, in how they vote. But two, because I don't want, if, you, if, if the moment I say I'm this, then half the room doesn't, doesn't, can't come here anymore. And Tri Village is much more than a political movement. This isn't a political campaign. Okay? So what happens is, is that political enemies are real. You feel superior to them. You, you, you start to think, how can someone believe that? How can someone vote for that person? So if you've done that ever to any degree, then you have more enemies than what you think. You know another place where enemies can come from? Your marriage. You know, I can't tell you how many times I have sat across a couple who's struggling. And the reason why they're struggling, it's not just because they're having a disagreement, but because they are actually enemies now. 
There's a hatred. There's a there's a vitriol. There's a there's a there's a uh, 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 an anger. And they're actually enemies. Now, here's what's interesting about that concept of enemies. When, when we think of an enemy, right, we think of someone who has always been an enemy, like someone, like a long-term enemy, right? We think of perennial enemies. But the Bible actually talks about seasonal enemies, too. You can have perennial enemies, but you can also have seasonal enemies. So, for example, my wife and I right now are good. We're not enemies. But maybe on Tuesday, we get in a fight, and for those 10 minutes, or let's be honest, 10 hours, they're, 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 we're enemies, Right? I'm trying to win. She's trying to win. We're not getting along. And so, so, so just, an enemy doesn't have to be someone who's long-term. You could be totally fine in your marriage, totally fine in your friendship, totally fine with your boss, and then all of a sudden, it goes from not an enemy to an enemy, and then you deal with it, and then you go to a non-enemy again. But, but we have enemies all over the place. And, and, and unfortunately for a lot of us, one of the places where I see that is in our marriages, in marriages, okay? Another enemy is vocationally. So you can have enemies at work. There's that coworker you don't like who's always competing or, or, or talking about you behind your back. There's that boss that never gives you, always, you know, overlooks you. And you feel superior to them as a result because I would never treat an employee like that. You could have enemies in your neighborhood, right? One of your, 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 your neighbors, God forbid, cut a part of your lawn, you know what I mean? Or, 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 or touched your branch or, you know what I mean? Or didn't clean the toys in the back and he's, they're dead to you now, you know? Some of you laugh, but you guys are ridiculous, some of you, with your, with your neighbors. Okay? So what we see is that enemies are all over the place. So, so, uh, some of our, our enemies can come from the family that we come from. Some of you right now, your enemy might be your, a parent of yours. An enemy might be a mother-in-law or a father-in-law. It could be a sibling that you haven't talked to for years. So what I want you to see here is that even though the word enemy seems so impractical on the surface, and you're like, nah, I don't, I don't really have enemies. I'm, I don't really have conflict. The reality is you have more conflict than what you think. Every single person in here is experiencing conflict to one degree or another. And listen, to the degree that we can embrace the fact that conflict is a reality that we're all going to experience, to that same degree, we will have a better, more biblical response when it happens. Look at this quote from Kevin DeYoung. Uh, he wrote an article on this passage. And he summarizes it with two points. He says, there are two difficult realities you must accept if you are to live faithfully as a Christian in the world. Number one, you will have enemies. Number two, and you must love those enemies. Jesus taught both things quite clearly. So if all you get from this message is that conflict is inevitable, and that you are going to have conflict in your life. If that's all you get, then that's, I've done most of my job already. Because if you expect it, then you're more likely to respond to it in a correct biblical way. But when you don't expect it, you're always going to respond unbiblically. Because Jesus promises us conflict. He guarantees it, actually. Okay? So let's go back to the three points. The first thing we see here in this passage is we see the reality of conflict. So now that we understand that conflict is a reality that we can't avoid, the second question we have to answer this morning is, how do we respond to it then? If it's going to happen and we can't avoid it, what should be our biblical response to it? In this passage, Jesus says there's two responses that you should have when it comes to the conflict in your life. So let me, let me jump back in here. Let me, let me read for you again. Verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Then you jump to verse 43. He says, you have heard that it was said, 
Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So here's what Jesus is saying, okay? I want you to follow along here. Jesus takes two famous teachings, two very well-known teachings that were being taught in his day, and he completely uh, gives a new interpretation to it. He says, oh, look, these people have gotten it totally wrong. And for those of you who've been, who've been coming for the last few weeks, you know that I've been saying that when Jesus quotes these mixed quotes, he's not quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the people of his day. He's not saying, for it is written. He's saying, for you have heard that it was said. So he's taking the, the popular teachings of his day, and he's adding or subtracting to them to show what the meaning of the passage actually is, okay? So he takes two very well-known concepts in those days, and he totally flips them on their head. The first thing Jesus says, if you go to the, yeah, thank you. He says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, the reason why Jesus brings that up, and for any of you who've done any sort of history in, in, in public school, or whatever school you went to, you, there's this thing called the Hammurabi's Code. It was 2,000 years before Jesus, B.C., okay? And the Hammurabi's Code actually was already teaching this, even before the Jews were. So this has been a concept that's been around for a long time. The, hey, if you, you know, hurt my, if you, take, you hurt my leg, I hurt your leg. If you, if you kill my ox, I kill your ox. This is something that's been happening for a long time. This doesn't originate with the Bible. But the reason why God implements it, it's, it's, it's really, it's just, I'm telling you, the more I study God's word, the more fascinating I find it. The reason why God implements this concept, there's actually two reasons. The first reason is because you know your heart, I know my heart. When someone hurts us, almost never do we want to give revenge to the same extent that they did to us, right? Right? So, so, so if you poke my eye, my eye, I want to poke both of your eyes. You see this with, our, with children. Like if you've, ever, if you've ever had children or if you've ever babysitted children, you, you could see it, right? Like this happens with my daughter all the time. If my oldest daughter pushes my younger daughter, there's about two seconds of like fake crying, right? And then you can see like the rage come up, like, and if I don't get in between it, she's not going over there to hug her or to even push her. She's trying to take her up, right? It's almost never, let me give you exactly back to you what you gave to me. It's almost always over the top. That's how we are. So go back to the neighbor illustration. If your neighbor accidentally cuts part of your lawn, you want to go burn the dude's shed down. You know what I mean? Like, like they, instead of doing it back, you're like, I'm gonna get, give me the gasoline, honey. That's how we are with revenge. It's rare that we, that we exact to them what they've done to us. It's rare. So the reason why God establishes this law, and I think it's so genius, is by doing it, he limits revenge. He doesn't let your heart get away from you. He limits it. He says, no, no, if someone takes blank, then you can take blank. Someone, you know, hurts your, your eye, then you can take their eye. But, but, but he limits the revenge on purpose so that your revenge doesn't go away, doesn't get away from you, right? But here's another thing that was very, that's very interesting about the way God created this law. When God first created this law in the Old Testament, the revenge was never meant to be taken personally. In other words, if you offended me, let's say that you accidentally killed my ox. It was, I had no right to go kill your ox. My job was to take you to the court, and then the court would decide to take your ox. But it was never meant to be personal retribution. I was never meant to do that, like, oh, well, you took this, I take that. No, no, no. It was always meant to be handled in court. So not only did God limit revenge by saying you could only take away what they've taken from you, but he also took the emotion out of it by saying you're not even the one that carries out the punishment. It's supposed to be done in court. But here's what the, the Pharisees in Jesus' day were doing. 
They took this law that God had made very clear in the Old Testament, and they were saying, no, 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 you can actually carry out personal revenge. If someone hurts you, you can hurt them back. You don't need any law. You don't need any court. You don't need God. Go get what you got to go get. The problem is that's not what the Old Testament teaches. And so Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's what they're saying, but that's not actually what the Bible teaches. Now, now, now follow with me here. You would think that what Jesus is saying is that getting revenge is wrong. But he's not saying that. He's not saying that getting revenge is wrong. He's not even saying getting retaliation is wrong. What he's saying is that revenge and retaliation don't belong to you. They belong to God. Okay? This is one of the most misinterpreted passages in all of Scripture. People like Gandhi built their whole movement on this passage. Problem is, Gandhi didn't understand the passage. Okay? And actually, one of the commentators said that if Gandhi had tried to pull that same movement in, in Germany in the 1940s, he would have been assassinated within three weeks. And what saved Gandhi is that he did it in India that was already a passive country, and that's why the movement worked. But he actually didn't apply this passage correctly. So here's what, here's what you see. Jesus is telling us that the first thing that is, that is not taught correctly is that when, he's saying, look, revenge is great. Retribution is great. But according to Romans and according to the Old Testament, the person who carries out revenge is the Lord, not you. You have no right. Okay? Then the other law that he unpacks, the other, the other teaching, famous teaching of the day that he goes after is to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The problem with that teaching is that it's not really biblical, actually. <laughs> the teachers of the day had, if you think they messed up the first one and misinterpreted, they completely butchered this one. Because what they actually do is they, 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 they subtract something and they add something. So the first thing they subtract is, 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 he says, you have heard it was said. So in other words, here's what people are teaching you nowadays. Love your neighbor. What they're actually, what the, what the verse in Leviticus actually says is love your neighbor as yourself. That's a big omission, okay? Because if, if, if I just have to love you generally, that means I can determine what love looks like. But when I have to love my neighbor as myself, when we think about how self-centered we are, we love ourselves a lot. That's a whole other standard. And so the fact that they drop the as yourself part, they're already changing the original command. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. They weren't teaching that. They just said, love your neighbor. Then the omission was already bad enough, but then there's an addition that wasn't there. He says, and hate your enemy. Listen, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say to hate your enemy. Not, like nowhere. It's not taught anywhere in scripture. And so these Pharisees, not only had they already omitted the as yourself part, but then they added, but hate your enemy. And Jesus is saying, uh, the problem with that is that it's not in the Bible. God never said that anywhere. You are to love your neighbor as yourself, and you are to never, under any circumstances, hate your enemy. So they butchered this one bad. And Jesus shows up and says, no, no, no. If this is what you think, then you really aren't getting it. You really aren't understanding what I'm saying. Okay? Now, if you're taking notes, let me, let me put it to you like this. In this passage, Jesus says, that there are two responses, there are two biblical responses to conflict. The first response is reactive. The second response is proactive, okay? So the first response to conflict, according to Jesus, 
is reactive. Now, if you go back to verse 38, I want you to see the reactive response to the conflict that Jesus is saying. So let me read that again. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, remember what I said. This is easily one of the most misinterpreted passages in all of Scripture. Many people have taken this this to say, oh, I, I, I should never defend myself. I should just be a doormat. And what Charles Spurgeon says is that there's a difference between an anvil and a doormat. An anvil and a doormat are two different things, okay? Here's why this is important. The first thing we must do is take a reactive response, a reactive response to conflict. Now, 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 when Jesus talks about someone slapping you on the right cheek, we we automatically go straight to the physical. Like, if someone slaps me, we're going to throw down. Like, we're going to fight, right? Like, we always think of it being a fight. But Jesus isn't actually talking about fighting because in those days, if you were trying to start a fight, you would punch someone in the face the same way you do now. Like you don't slap them and challenge them to a duel. Like that's not, that's not what he's talking about here, okay? Like if we're dudes and you slap me, I, I, I'm, I actually feel bad for you, if anything. I'm not like, I don't want to fight you. Like, I want to pray for you. <laughs> I mean, like, okay? He's not, he's, he's not actually talking about a physical confrontation here. Here's why. Because in those days, in order to slap someone on the right cheek, you would have to hit them, hit them with the back of your left hand. It was a very disrespectful, very dishonoring thing to do. And for me to hit you that way, what I was actually doing was I was insulting you and I was telling you that I'm better than you, that I'm superior to you, and that in my eyes, you're a nobody. So he's talking more about an insult than he is about a fight. Does that, does that make sense? So, so in those days, if anyone slapped you like that, and actually one of the commentators I read said this, he said, that was such an insulting, demeaning thing that a slave would rather be hit with a whip on their back than to be slapped across the face. Because it wasn't just the physical pain of it, but you were actually saying something about the person. You were saying, I am superior to you and you are nothing to me. So Jesus is talking about an insult here. Now here's, what, here's what's so incredible about Jesus here. And this is why I would say someone like a Gandhi, for example, has gotten this passage wrong. When you get slapped, whether that's physically or, you know, uh, uh, you know, theoretically, like someone attacks your character or someone, you know, confronts you in a meeting, there's essentially two responses you can have, right? The first response is to retaliate. The second response is to retreat, Right? So there's the, and those are, those are the two personalities that you see mostly, right? Whenever there's conflict, there's two types of people. There's the ragers, the ones who go after it and retaliate, and then, there, then there's the runners, the ones who run away from it as far as they can, okay? So whenever, if I'm in a meeting or if, if I find out someone's talking about me, I have two responses. I can retaliate, be a rager, or I can retreat and be a runner. But Jesus says, I don't want you to do neither. Here's what he says instead. Instead of retaliating, instead of retreating, I want you to seek reconciliation. Okay? Those are very different things. So instead of retaliating and seeking retribution, instead of retreating and running, I want you to stand your ground and seek reconciliation at all costs. Because think about it. If someone were to slap you on the cheek and you were to offer them the other cheek, in order for you to offer the other cheek, you have to stay still, right? I'm not backing down. I'm offering you my other cheek. And what one commentator said is that the reason why you stay there is because what you're actually seeking is reconciliation. Like, hey, you slapped me once. 
but my desire is to be reconciled to you, so let me give you another chance. I'm staying here because what I want is not to retaliate and hurt you, not to retreat and be hurt myself, but I want to stay here and I want to be reconciled to you. That's why, that's why what Jesus says is so brilliant. You, you wouldn't see that if you just read past this, right? That's the gospel balance that only Jesus can bring. Because there's some people who, who have grown up in this world, and all they see is fights. And all they, they just see, they, 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 they believe that first truth, that conflict is a reality. They believe that to their bones. And so they go looking for it everywhere. They're the ragers who are always retaliating, always looking for retribution. And then there's other people who don't really think conflict is a thing. And so what they always do is run away from it and avoid it at all costs. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I'm not telling you to, to be aggressive. I'm not telling you to be passive. I'm telling you to stand your ground. Don't seek retaliation. Don't, seek, don't retreat, but stand your ground and seek reconciliation. Give that person opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be reconciled to you. Whether they take advantage of it or not, it's up to them. They can keep slapping you again and again and again. It's going to hurt. But your goal should be reconciliation. You're not going to hear that anywhere in this world. No book, no podcast, no tweet. We'll teach what Jesus is teaching here. That's the balance that he wants us to have. So listen, I don't know who you have as an enemy right now. I don't even know what they've done to you. But what I'm telling you, you're, ha- you're probably having one of two responses. You're either retaliating by using a silent treatment or, you know, or, 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 or you know, giving them attitude or, or guilting them, or you have just retreated. You just have cut them off completely and avoid the subject altogether. Regardless of whether you're retaliating or retreating, neither response is biblical. Jesus says what you should be seeking is reconciliation. Now, the question is, how can we as believers, if you're sitting here and you have faith in Jesus, right, if you're a disciple of Jesus, why or how can we actually do something like this? Like, how can I respond in this way? How is that even possible? Well, here's why. Because someone who, who's a Christian, someone who has believed the gospel, there's two things that are true. And because they're true, you can respond the way Jesus is saying to respond. The first thing is you know who you are. And the second thing is you know who God is. You know who you are. And you know who God is. So, so, so let, me, let me explain it to you like this. When someone attacks me, you would think that the strong, courageous thing to do would be to attack them back. But actually, any counselor worth their salt will tell you that someone who retaliates, someone who's angry and aggressive, anger, violence, and aggressiveness are not a sign of strength. They're a sign of weakness. You you guys have heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people, right? And what I've seen is that many times the loudest person in the room is the weakest person in the room. And so it actually takes more strength to not retaliate it takes more courage to not retaliate than to retaliate. But the only way you can do it is if you know who you are. It says in the passage that we are children of God. See, once I understand that I'm God's child and that I'm already loved, already accepted, I can come to you in a state of fullness. I'm not empty. I'm not looking for you to fill me because I already have everything I need in Jesus. So when you offend me, when you come after me, when you attack me, I'm not looking for validation or value from you. So I can stand my ground because I'm already accepted. And I've already been validated. I've already been approved of. I don't need your approval. So I can love you because Jesus has already loved me. I can forgive you because Jesus has already forgiven me. So the first thing you got to be sure of if you're going to respond to conflict this way is you have to know who you are. But you also have to know who God is. 
And here's why. Remember what I said earlier. Jesus isn't saying that retaliation is wrong. He's not saying that revenge is a bad thing. What he's saying is that it doesn't belong to you. That person will get what they has coming to them. You better believe it. But the one who's taking account is not you, it's God. And by God's grace, he takes more accurate accounts than we do. Okay? So once I understand who I am, and once I understand who God is, that God's the one who's ultimately going to defend me and fight my battles, I don't have to be uh, retributive. I don't have to retaliate. But at the same time, I don't have to run away either because I know that my value doesn't come from the person in front of me but from the Savior above me. Okay? So, so the first response, the first biblical response to conflict is reactive. The second biblical response to conflict is proactive. And where do I get that? Well, he says to love your neighbors. I mean, yeah, love your neighbor. And then, oh, sorry, later on, he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, so, that's the, so the first thing we looked at was the reactive. Whenever you get slapped or attacked, this is how you respond. That's the reactive response. But then he gives us a proactive response, and he says, you are to love. And the Greek word there is agape. There's a lot of Greek words for love. There's stergi, and there's Philadelphia. That's, those are all conditional loves. He's saying agape love. You know what I love about agape love? It's one way, it's unconditional, and it's not an emotion. It has to do more with the volition than with an emotion. It's a decision. See, because if, if Jesus were to say, hey, I want you to love your enemy, and he would have used any other Greek word, it wouldn't make any sense. Because emotionally, I have no reason to love my enemy. But if the Greek word is agape, and it's a decision, not an emotion, it has to do with my will, not my heart. Now I can do that. It's the same Greek word that is used, the same love that God loves us with. The Greek word agape is such an interesting word in Greek because what it means is, is to love someone based on perceived value. So you're not loving them based on actual value because if you love them based on their actual value, you would never love your enemies because they've made, they've made themselves unlovable. But the word agape means to love someone based on perceived value. So I am giving you worth. I am attributing something to you in light of the gospel that might not be true of you, but I can love you because Jesus loved me. So you see, it's, it's proactive. Now, remember what we said a couple weeks ago when we were looking at anger. One of the, Greek, one of the Aramaic words that Jesus used was the word raka. And the word raka was, was, was interesting because what it means is it means to see someone as a nobody, as nothing, as a zero. In order for you to be angry with someone, you have to feel, feel superior to them. You have to feel like you're above them, right? Well, the, the, the best way to deal with raka is agape. I can't feel superior to you. I can't see you as a nothing, a nobody, a zero if I'm supposed to love you. And so it kills anger at its root if you do it correctly. Now, some of you are like, well, you don't, I don't think you understand who my enemies are. Like, I don't think you understand what I've been through. Like, I don't think you understand how bad the situation is. Look, I'm not saying it's easy. Actually, Jesus is saying it's, it's much harder than what you think because in the Greek, the, the, the word there, uh, love, is a present imperative. The word there, pray, is a present imperative. And the word persecute is also in the present tense. So here's what it means. In the Greek, here's what it actually reads like. It says, but I tell you, be loving and praying for your enemies, those who are persecuting you. So it's not like they persecuted you back in the day. He says, love the people who are persecuting you right now. 
Some of us are still struggling with something that happened back like in 96. You know what I mean? Someone did something one time and you still haven't forgiven them. Jesus says, I don't want you just to love that person. I want you to love the person who's currently persecuting you now. Present tense. And the word love and prayer are loving and praying. So it's not like you loved once and you're done. But you're constantly loving, constantly praying for the people who are constantly persecuting. And he says, the reason why we have to do this, the reason why we must be proactive in, in our response to conflict is because if we don't, then we're no better than anybody else. Because he talks about the tax collectors and the pagans. Listen, if all you do is love people who are like you, if all you do is love the people, heck, I struggle at loving the people I'm supposed to love, let alone love the people I don't like. But if all you do is love the people who love you back, then what makes Christianity different from any other religion? But if I understand the gospel, and at its heart, the gospel is God loving his enemies to the point of death, then that should change the way I treat my enemies too. Okay? So, I actually have a couple quotes here I want to read for you. Here's the first one. Look what it says. This is from Alfred Plummer, one of the commentators I came across. He says, listen, this, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. So, so look, look. If, if, if someone does something good and you respond with evil, then you're acting like the devil. That's your sin, right? If someone does something good and you respond with good, then you're just being a human. Anybody can do that. But if someone responds with evil to you and you respond with good, only the Holy Spirit can do that. You need the gospel for the third one. And look at this other quote from Max Licato. He says, conflict is, inevit is inevitable, but combat is optional. So remember what the first truth we said? Conflict is inevitable. You are going to experience conflict. But if you respond to it biblically, then combat is optional. So I want you to ask yourself this question. How prepared are you for the conflict in your life? Like, how much of a reality is conflict to you? Are you expecting it? Are you prepared for it? And the next question is this. When conflict happens, how are you responding? Are you retaliating? Are you retreating? Or, like Jesus says, are you reconciling? So let's go back to the three points. So we've seen the reality of conflict. We've taken a closer look at the response to conflict. Now I want to conclude this morning by looking at the resources for conflict. And the reason why I want to conclude by looking at the resources is because some of you came in this morning thinking, man, I already had a problem with conflict. I was already bad at it. But all you've done over the last 30 minutes has made me feel worse. I thought I had a problem, but now I know I have a problem. Right? But here's what's so crazy about Jesus. Jesus knows that there's still people in the room who still don't think they have a problem. Like, there's some of you who are like, oh, well, no, no, you don't get it. I've been taking notes since you started, and I, I, I got this. I remember I'm never going to struggle with conflict ever again. I got this. Yeah, well, let me know how Wednesday goes when you fight your spouse <laughs> or when someone cuts you off or when your boss overlooks you for something. Let me know how, 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 how you're doing by Thursday. See, there's still people here who in their self-righteousness are like, well, this is, yeah, the problem is pretty bad. 
But then again, I'm pretty good. So I, I got this. Like, I got, I got, it, I got it written down. Like, I, I'm going to do this. Like, you don't get it. Like, I already have an idea of who I'm going to forgive and how I'm going to reconcile. Like, I got this. Like, I, I'm good. No, you're not. And just to make sure that you're not good, Jesus puts a nail in the coffin, in your self-righteous coffin in verse 48. Look how he finishes. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So for those of you who weren't convicted with the first nine verses and you thought you still had a chance, Jesus has been, with the first nine, he's like, look, I tried to, I tried to show you you couldn't do it. But just in case you still think you can, let me put the nail in your self-righteous con- uh, coffin. Be perfect, and the word there, perfect, means to be morally complete. The word there, perfect, means to be fully mature as your heavenly Father is perfect. We got a problem, guys. There's a problem here because Jesus is asking us to do something that we were all pretty sure we couldn't do, and now for a fact we know we can't do because the summary statement is be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, so the question is how can we do it? How can we ever hope to live this life? How can we ever try and be the people that Jesus is calling us to be? Well, the reason why Jesus with this passage in general and in, in this verse in particular, the reason why he says what he says is because Jesus wants you to look outside of yourself. That's the point of the whole passage. Jesus wants you to say, I can't do this. I'm not the one that can actually do this. And Jesus says, if you are there, then you're exactly where you need to be because you're not the one that ultimately fulfills this passage. You must look to someone else. And the person who you need to look to is Jesus. Listen, listen. Jesus, here's what's what's, what's so incredible about this passage. When you look at the standards of this passage, the, the standards were already high enough, but then you add verse 48 and then you realize there's no one who can actually do it. When you look at the standards of this passage and what the law is commanding us to do, it, it, it debilitates you. It makes you feel like, how can I actually do this? But here's the thing. There was one person on planet Earth who actually lived this out. So, so let me put this. The one person who actually lived out the commands of this passage is the one person who at the end of his life died and received the consequences of this passage. So, so the one person who obeyed the commands, who shouldn't have received the consequences, is the one person who received the full consequences of this passage. Listen, listen. At the cross, at the cross, Jesus the perfect one died for the imperfect ones so that by faith in him, we might become perfect. Okay? At the cross, God's only child died like an orphan so that by faith in him, we might become children. Jesus literally, it's almost like he went through his entire life and went through a checklist on this passage. Everything Jesus goes through is found in this passage. Jesus was slapped by the soldiers. Then they took away his tunic and sold it off. Right? Then then, then he's persecuted all the way to the cross. And then when the man gets to the cross, he has the audacity to pray for his enemies. This passage is a portrait, and the portrait is not of you and me. It's of Jesus. See, once you get that, then then it changes the way you approach conflict. It it changes it. Because the question would be like, well, why did Jesus go through that? Well, listen, Jesus met the requirements of the passage so that you and I might get the resources of the passage. He met the requirements so that we might get the resources. 
See, once I understand that, it changes my self-perception, and as a result, it changes my perception of others. Now, I view myself differently, and as a result, I view you differently because of what Jesus did. Listen, the reason why I can turn the other cheek is because Jesus turned the other cheek for me. The reason why I can seek reconciliation at all costs is because Jesus sought reconciliation at all costs. The reason why I can pray for my enemies is because according to Romans, Jesus prayed for his enemies at the cross. The reason why I can show agape love to you horizontally is because Jesus showed agape love to me vertically. It changes how you do conflict when you understand what Jesus did. It totally transforms it, flips it upside down. When you understand the gospel and what Jesus did, there is no slap you can't forgive and there's no enemy you can't love. And you might be here thinking, you know, Will, you have no idea who my enemy is. You have no idea what was done to me. Listen, if you go to God and you say, hey, you have no idea who my enemy is and you have no idea what was done to me, you know what God's going to say? Well, you have no idea what you've done to me. Because whatever you're offended by, what you did was way worse. Listen, to the degree that you see yourself as a child of God, to that same degree you will behave like a child of God. And to the degree that you understand that at the cross, Jesus dealt with your vertical conflict between you and God, to that same degree you will deal with your horizontal conflict between you and others. Once I see what Jesus did for me, then and only then can I do it for you. So listen, guys, I'm not sure who you have to forgive. I'm not sure what you've been through. But what I'm telling you is that in this passage, Jesus is not just our example, but he's our savior. He's the example we follow and the savior we believe in. Amen? Let's pray.